You're not in this story. Yeah, well, we're making it up as we go. Hello and welcome to Making It Up As We Go, a Destiel fan fiction anthology podcast. We're making it up as we go. I'm your host and reader, Nerdy Nerdenstein. The story is ours now. You can't have it back. Please be warned that the stories featured can and will contain explicit sexual content and is not intended for young audiences. Hello. Today I'll be recording Depth of Field by Tess Etc. The rating for this fic is explicit. The pertinent tags for this fic includes Major character death, but kind of not. Time travel, illness, vomiting, pining. Photographer Dean, Dr. Castiel. 1960s, 2010s. Alternative universe, no monsters or hunting. Implied or referenced suicide. Grief and mourning. Smut. Chapter 8. In the Still of the Night Dean wakes up in Cass's sick room as expected. He looks over in the dim light to see Cass's dark head resting next to him. He's asleep in the chair, his arms folded on the bed next to Dean, and his head is resting in his folded arms. In the Still of the Night is playing softly on the radio in the other room. Dean lifts his hand to rest it on Cass's head only to find an IV line going into the back of his hand. He leaves it where it is and goes back to sleep. I do this anymore, Cass says. Dean has been more or less alert for the past few hours, although Cass told him he was asleep for almost three days. When Dean told him that his only regret was that it ate into their time together, Cass had walked out of the room. He comes back only minutes later, his hair a ruin. Dean holds out his hand and Cass takes it. I missed you, Dean says. It's not worth your life, Dean. You can't keep doing this to yourself. Dean lets his head fall back on the pillow. This house is too quiet without you in it, Cass. I missed you. 
I wear your sweater. I listen to your records. But it's not you. I missed you too. But I don't think you can take many more of these trips. You need to see a doctor. He holds up his hand. Don't say I'm a doctor. I'm a pretty poor doctor. And I'm sure the advancements in your time can do better than I can in my house. I'll wait, Cass. It'll get better. I'll wait until I'm better before I come back here. But don't tell me not to come. My brother has his family. I work all the time. My only real friend is a dude who's busy breaking up with his girlfriend and reuniting every six months. Dean. Cass let his voice trail off. I don't want to argue, Cass. I think we have a week. Maybe ten days. I don't want to spend them angry. It's another day before Dean is able to get out of bed, but he does. He eats what Cass gives him, ignores the headaches and the dizzy spells, and lets Cass drive him to the park for fresh air and to the movies and to a drive-in restaurant, which Dean finds delightful. They watch American Bandstand on TV. Cass asks about dance fads in the future, and Dean tries to demonstrate the Macarena. Cass talks about Anna and how his father was distant after his mother died. He worked a lot, basically leaving the Novak kids alone to raise themselves. His father died when Cass was 19, and Cass struggled to finish school and raise his sister alone at the same time. She got sick when she was only 21, and Cass did everything he could to help her, even taking leave from work in her last year when she became bedridden. I miss her, Cass says. I wanted to be a doctor so I could help people but I wasn't able to help her once she got sick. I did what I could, but I wasn't good enough to help her. I couldn't even help my own sister. I don't know if I'll be able to help anyone else either. You helped me, Cass. You take such good care of me. Cass shakes his head, ignoring Dean's compliment. Tell me about Sam, he says, changing the subject. You must be close. I was 20 when my parents were killed. It was a drunk driver. Got them both. It was just me and Sammy after that. He was still in high school, so I pulled it together for him, but it was rough. Almost dropped out of college, but he wouldn't let me. When he finished school, he went to Stanford. He met Jessica there, but they moved back after he graduated. He works at a law firm now. It must be hard for him with you so ill. Dean is quiet for a moment, his hand in Cass's. Sam is worried about him, and with Cass's story about Anna fresh in his mind, it makes him understand what Sam's going through a little better. If it were reversed and it was Sam who was sick, who was claiming it was because of something impossible, well, maybe he should go a little easier on his brother when he gets back.
Cass makes supper and Dean is feeling well enough to help, peeling potatoes and stirring the gravy. It's a little chicken instead of a turkey, and it's two days after Thanksgiving, but it's theirs. Dean eats as much as he can and ignores Cass's worried looks. Cass won't let him help with the dishes, so Dean puts the platters on the record player, and when smoke gets in your eyes, plays. He pulls Cass into his arms and they sway slowly to the music together. They make their way upstairs after and they kiss slowly as Cass pulls his clothes off. When Cass finally pushes inside him, he looks up at Cass and whispers softly, I think I love you. Afterwards, with Cass's arms around him, he feels his lips move against the back of his neck as Cass softly rumbles out, I love you too. Dean's been in 1962 for a week. They stay close to home, aware that their time is drawing to a close. Dean sits at the table watching Cass putter around. He'd tried to help, but a wave of dizziness had washed over him, and Cass had forced him to sit, threatening to send him to bed alone if he didn't comply. Dean sees the notepad and pulls it over, gleefully writing the kiss prescription note and handing it to Cass who rewards him with two kisses and a dorky admonition that he would have prescribed at least four. Dean laughs, but when spots form in front of his eyes, he stops, closing his eyes and breathing slowly as it passes. When he has regained his equilibrium, he looks at Cass to find the doctor scowling at him. I love you, Dean, but you can't come back. You told me I was alone, but I won't be. I know I'll see you again, but it can't be like this. Cass, you were old. You were like 50 when I was born. You can't just grow old waiting for some kid. For me. I don't want that for you. I won't wait for you. Dean stands up and makes his way to Cass. You will. You did, Cass. You deserve better. I'll find a way to come back, Cass. I'll convince Sam to stop calling me back somehow. I don't think you can change the past, Dean. The future. You know what I mean. Dean frowns at Cass. Well, there's only one way to find out. He grabs a knife from the block and stalks out of the kitchen into the sick room, walking around the bed to the window. This is my office. I spend a lot of time in here, and I know for a fact this isn't here. He begins carving the windowsill. And when he's done, he steps back to show Cass the words Dean plus Cass carved into the sill. Don't remove that. Don't sand it away. And if it's still there when I go home, I know the future can change, and I will come back, Cass. I'll find a way to convince Sam, and I will come back. Cass glares at him from across the room, and Dean glares back, 
until there's nothing to do but walk towards each other. But before he goes two steps, he hears the echo of his brother's voice. Oh, Sam, no, he says before everything goes black. Chapter 9. Holidays They say you should be out of the hospital by Christmas, Sam says. His mouth is tight with stress and Dean looks away guilty. It's not just Dean's health, but Sam's been dealing with the health insurance and the medical bills. He's seen oncologists and radiologists and every other ologist under the sun, but nobody can find what's wrong with him. And Dean has no answers that anyone, especially Sam, will accept. Dean was in a coma for a week after Thanksgiving, and he's lost so much weight that he looks skeletal when he sees himself in the mirror. But he has nothing he can say to Sam, nothing that doesn't either sound like a lie or that is a lie, because despite his vague thoughts that he might be able to come up with some excuse for his health that Sam will accept, he simply can't lie to Sam like that. So he says nothing at all. They're left at kind of an impasse, the ease of their close relationship shattered. They're still close, that hasn't changed, but there's a stiffness there that wasn't before. Dean knows he has to find a way to fix that before he can convince Sam to let him go back. He's in no shape to time travel anyway. You should consider selling the house, Sam says. Absolutely not, Dean says. I'm not selling our, my house. There's something there that's poisoning you. You've had 20 different people in there testing for everything under the sun. Lead, asbestos, arsenic. There's nothing there that isn't in any house that age, and they all said it was safe. It's not the house, Sam. Drop it. He reaches for his cup of water, and Sam strides to the window and glares out of it, like he could set the cars in the parking lot on fire with his eyeballs alone. So, Christmas, Dean says. What do the kids want? Holidays are tense at first, but Dean puts everything he has into his family and his health. He gains 15 pounds by New Year's, is able to go a whole day without falling asleep, and takes regular walks around the neighborhood. He spends an afternoon taking pictures of his brother's family in the snow, 
and manages to convince Sam to let him go home long enough to edit and print them. Sam, of course, breathes down his neck the whole time, but he manages to distract his brother long enough to tuck the Pentax away and collect his photo album and cast his sweater, while Sam is distracted flipping through the photos. He stuffs them into an old duffel bag and heads back into his office, where Sam is waiting. His brother doesn't hear him coming, so he pauses in the doorway to watch him for a moment. Dean isn't the only one who's lost weight. Sam has clearly been feeling the stress. Between two kids, one of them a newborn, his job and dealing with Dean, it's clearly taken a toll on him. Dean rubs the back of his neck uncomfortably. It's his job to look after his little brother, and he hasn't been doing a very good job of it lately. He walks over to Sam, who looks up with a watery grin. You ready to go, Dean? Yeah, I just wanted to grab a couple of things. He looks around his office wistfully. I really should dust in here. He pushes the curtain aside to look out, and his eye catches on the letters carved into the windowsill. Letters that have never been there before. Sam won't take his word for it, though. He shuts the curtain again and turns around. All right, let's go. Later that night, he lies in the guest bed, which is at least an actual bed, which Sam got to replace the futon once he decided Dean would stay there long term. He's wrapped in Cass's sweater as he flips through the photos. There are so few of Cass. But now that he knows he can change things, he's going to take a whole roll of him next time he goes back. He just needs to get better. Dean's 34th birthday rolls around at the end of January 2013. He's antsy already, wondering if Cass thinks he's decided not to return. But he's determined to get well enough to survive the trip, and has gained back about two-thirds of the weight he'd lost. Benny and Andrea, on again, come by for Sam's for supper. It's just beer, but there's pie for dessert. So, awesome. They gather in the living room after supper and Sam hands him a beer. Dean takes it, propping his feet on the coffee table and watching Benny as he tries to teach Lily some French words that Dean is pretty sure are swears. Dean takes a swig. It's the first beer he's had in months, and it's pretty good. Jessica comes back from putting Michael to sleep and sits on the other side of Sam with her own first beer in a long time. They reach over and clink them together. Married, Mama, Lily announces, and that one Jessica knows. All right, Benny, she laughs. Don't make me wash your mouth out with soap. It's bedtime, Lily. Can Uncle Dean tuck me in? 
Absolutely, Squirt, Dean says, getting to his feet and picking up his niece. He carries her around to kiss everyone goodnight, then brings her upstairs, helping her get ready for bed and tucking her in. He reads her a story and bends to kiss her forehead. She's already half asleep when he slips out of her room and heads back downstairs. He comes into the living room to find that Benny and Andrea have managed to smoosh themselves together into the big recliner. Jess is lying on the couch with her feet in Sam's lap, and he's absently rubbing them as they all chat. It makes his heart clench for a moment. He misses Cass like a hole in his heart, like a piece of his soul is missing. He wonders if Cass is missing him too, in that big house fifty years ago. He pastes on a smile and slips into the living room, settling on the love seat alone and letting the conversation wash over him. Eventually, Benny and Andrea leave, and Jess heads upstairs with a bottle, summoned by Michael's thready cry coming over the baby monitor, leaving Sam and Dean alone. Thanks for the supper and the pie and everything. Sam just waves his hand. I just know it's been a lot having me here. You're my brother. My home is yours. Dean takes a sip of his now flat beer. It's really not, he says. You have a good life, Sam. A home. With Jess. You'll find someone, Dean. I know I would feel better if you weren't alone. I do have someone, Sam. I wish I could make you understand. Dean, I thought you were done with this. I can't be done. What would you do to be with Jess? If the whole universe was between you and her. There's someone out there for you, Dean. There is, but he just can't convince Sam. Dean moves back to his house at the end of February, and he does his best to wean Sam off of his mother Henning. He takes a few jobs and starts work on a coffee table book of photos of Lawrence, past and present. He's pretty gleeful about it, although he doesn't bring up how many of the past photos are the ones he took himself. There's a conference in Las Vegas in March, and Sam spends a week panicking about the talk he's giving. He's been asked to consult with a law firm in Nevada afterwards, and will be gone for several weeks. Jessica's sister is coming to stay for a couple of weeks, and in the hustle and bustle of everything, Sam slacks off enough to go a whole three days without making Dean check in. For his part, Dean feels great. Well, not 100%, but he's been jogging, gross, and he's regained some muscle. He feels like he's training for battle. He even starts thinking about getting a punching bag for working out at home. But with Sam leaving for a few weeks and Jessica busy, it's the best chance he's going to get for the foreseeable future. He's hoping the long time it's been since the last trip means it will be easier on him. He checks the fridge, takes out the trash, and sets up the pentax once again in the office. He really hopes Cass is home, 
It's just now occurring to him that maybe Cass could be out or something. He stares at the camera for a moment, considering. But there's no way to know in the end. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, he hums, setting the timer. Chapter 10. The Last Time. Dean wakes up in a bathtub full of ice, and Cass is clearly pissed. You weren't breathing, Dean, Cass says when he sees that Dean is semi-alert. You have a fever of a hundred and six. Why did you do this, Dean? Dean lifts his hand to Cass's cheek. Because I love you. In the end, it's three days before Dean can sit up in bed long enough to hold a conversation. He's in the master bedroom now since Cass was putting him in the tub regularly for two of those three days, and there's only the powder room downstairs. He's got an IV and a bunch of medications for pain and nausea. He can tell by prodding his fingers around his abdomen that he's lost most of the progress he'd made in the past few months. He thinks he might have a loose tooth, too. Not that he mentions that to Cass. But as he lies in the dark of their bedroom, Cass curled up at his side, he knows it was worth it. He just wishes he'd been able to convince Sam to let him stay. Cass, listen to me. The letters I carved were there. They weren't before. Things can change. I know they can. I know we can be together. You haven't convinced your brother. I love you, but these stolen days aren't enough. It's killing you. Give me the camera, Cass, and a paper and a pen. Cass reluctantly gets to his feet and leaves for a moment, returning with the pen tacks. Dean has him set it up on the dresser by the window, but the angle is bad, so he drags the dresser over a foot or so and sets the timer. Dean sets down the pen and holds up the paper he's been writing on. Dean W., B-1979, Castiel N., B-1930, March 17th, 1963. He finishes scribbling, then leans over and plants a smooch on Cass's cheek just as the camera goes off. If that doesn't prove it to Sam, nothing will. Cass just shakes his head and shoves the dresser back. He steps away and looks down. Oh, I gouged the floor. And then I can't tell myself What the hell I'm supposed to do Dean recovers a little more quickly in Cass's house, and he thinks it's because he had time to really heal up after his last trip. 
It was months since the last time he'd traveled, but Sam has always called him back in a week or so. He doesn't feel great, but it helps that Cass is here with him, in the room while he naps. He likes to sit propped up against the headboard while Dean naps in the afternoon sun coming through the bedroom window. Dean inches closer and winds his arm around Cass's waist. Cass runs his hands through his hair. It's good to be home, in their house, in their room. It isn't the same when the house is empty. Cass finds him in the bathroom on the floor. He thought he could make it to the toilet on his own, but he had gotten dizzy and fallen. The thump had alerted Cass, who was downstairs making soup. He'd run upstairs immediately and swore when he found Dean passed out in the bathroom. Dean comes woozily awake when Cass sits him up. Sorry, I just... It's fine, Cass says, helping him to his feet. Dean drops his pants and sits on the toilet. Then Cass hovers as he washes up. They make their way back to the bedroom and into the bed. This is the last time, Dean. I'm not going to watch you die. I don't want to live here without you, Cass. You're it for me. You know it. Dean, there's nothing for you here. It's not like we can get married or even walk around Lawrence holding hands. In the future, you have a future. I don't want it, Cass. I don't want it if you're not there with me. I would rather stay here. I can find a way. I know I can. And we'll do so much together, Cass. We can watch the moon landing together. We can go to Woodstock. Star Wars, Cass. I can't wait to watch Star Wars with you. Dean, I'm... I'm broken. I can't even bring myself to go back to work. I just sit here alone all day long, waiting for you to show up dead. I won't survive that. I will find a way. Cass turns around angry. Maybe I shouldn't stay. Maybe I should sell the house and move somewhere else. Will that keep you home, Dean? You're my home. You, Cass, please. I don't want to argue with you. I don't know how long we have. Come here. Cass hesitates, but he climbs in bed with Dean anyway. I'll wait for you. You know I will. But I would rather wait my whole life and only ever see you from afar than to find you dead on the floor. Dean closes his eyes and holds Cass tight. Hey, Cass says, setting the tray down next to the bed the next day. Dean's eyes blink open. I made you soup. You didn't have to bring it here. I think I can get up. Eat first, then we'll go sit in the living room. We can watch the Jetsons. You can... He's cut off by Dean's bark of laughter, which goes on for a few moments before tapering off into coughs. He reaches for Dean's wrist with one hand, feeling for his pulse, while his other hand reaches for his forehead and then his neck, checking for fever. Dean bats his hand away. I'm fine, babe, I promise. I'm feeling a lot better today. 
I'd really rather eat at the table, though. Cass considers. I'll make you a deal. Eat your soup here, and I will bring the television up here, and we can watch it in bed. Dean quirks his mouth up into a grin. How about this for a counteroffer? I'll eat here, and you can get in bed with me, but let's forget hauling the TV up here. Dean winks at him, and he can see the faint spark of interest in his blue eyes. Good to know he hasn't entirely lost his sex appeal along with his muscle mass. Fine, Cass says, but eat first. Dean eats his soup, doing his best to get it down. His appetite hasn't returned, but he knows he will need the nutrients. Cass is a good cook, though, and the soup is filling and warm. Cass watches him as he eats. He looks a little less stressed than the last few days, his eyes soft and warm, a smile quirking his lips as Dean makes a joke. What's the prognosis, doctor? Dean asks, watching with interest as he strips down to his boxers and undershirt before sliding into the bed next to Dean. I have to admit, you do seem much improved. Dean inches closer to him, his lips brushing along his cheek and jaw. I feel much improved. I feel very energetic, in fact. Dean's hand skims down over Cass's belly, and his fingertips creep into the waistband of his boxers. He rolls over onto his side so he can take Dean into his arms and kiss him properly, letting their tongues slide together and his hands roam. He tastes good, like the soup, but also like Cass, fresh air and sunshine and a faint whiff of disinfectant. It's a safe, warm smell. Cass sucks in a breath as his hand skims Dean's belly. He's thin, he knows it, but Cass doesn't say anything. Instead, he slides his palms around to Dean's backside and pulls him closer, writing against him as Dean slips his hand between them, pushing their clothing aside and taking them both in hand. There's no other sound in the room aside from their breath their whispers to each other, and the soft moans as they both reach completion. I love you, Cass whispers. I love you too, Dean replies softly. He looks into Cass's blue eyes and holds him tight. He doesn't know how long he has, but he wants to spend every moment of it like this, safe in Cass's arms, in the warm, soft sunshine of their room. The spend drying between them is a little distracting, though. He pulls his head back to look at Cass. I'm getting a little sticky, babe, as much as I want to stay like this forever. He smiles at Dean. Okay, I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Where would I go? Dean replies, watching as he slides out of the bed and makes his way down the hall to the bathroom. He lays back and listens to the water running. He closes his eyes, but instead of Cass returning, he hears his brother's voice echoing through the house. Oh no, Sam, it's too soon, he cries. But it doesn't stop Sam from pulling him through time. It's July before Sam will even let him in the house. And when he does, Sam goes with him. Most of his personal things are at Sam's place already. But Sam wouldn't let him work until he got the all clear from the doctor. 
So Sam finally brings him home to collect his computer and stuff. Dean has been arguing with Sam. He's tried everything. But the truth is, he's still weak as a kitten a lot of the time. Sam had not felt right about leaving, had been uneasy for the first few days of the conference. But when Jessica had told him she hadn't heard from Dean, he'd declined the consulting job and gone home early. He'd gone immediately to Dean's house and found him half-dressed in the bedroom, and he'd been seizing. Even when he'd been released from the hospital and into his brother's care, his fever had still spiked at random times for weeks. Sam became a pro at administering Tylenol and wiping Dean down with cool cloths while he thrashes in bed. One morning, Dean woke in a sweat-soaked bed to find Sam sitting in the chair next to him, his head in his hands. Sammy, he said. Sam looked up at him, his eyes red. You called out for Cass in your sleep, Dean. Dean nodded. He could remember little of the night before, just the waves of heat and missing Cass like a limb. You said I keep calling you back, that your camera sends you home, but I keep pulling you back. You said I was killing you. Dean turned his head away. You have your family, Sam. You don't need me. I can't do this alone. Yes, you can. Well, I don't want to. Dean left it at that. Now, in his office, he packs his computer, drives, printer, and his camera and lenses, while Sam carries it all out to the car. He's looking around the room when Sam returns. Where's Cass's Pentax, Sam? I took it, Dean. I put it away. I don't know how, but it's making you sick. Sam, you have no right to take my things. What the fuck? It's not negotiable. You're sick. And I don't know what that camera has to do with it, but it does. Dean glares at Sam before grabbing the last box and stalking out of the house. When the night was full of terror Then your eyes were filled with tears Do you want to come to the park? Sam said he'd meet us there for lunch. Dean looks up from his computer to see Jessica leaning on the doorway, Michael on her hip. Lily squeezes in around Jess and runs up to Dean. I want you to push me on the swings, Uncle Dean. He really could use some fresh air. He's been editing all day. Yeah, for sure. Just let me save these edits. Lily hangs around, keeping him from getting caught up in his work again. And a few minutes later, he's getting to his feet and heading out the door with Jess and the kids. It's nice at the park, a beautiful day, and he pushes Lily on the swing and holds her as she crosses the monkey bars. She finds some other kids to play with, and so Dean sits back down on the bench with Jess. Sam shows up a little afternoon, and they eat the sandwiches Jess packed. Sam bounces the baby on his knee while Jess rounds up Lily. When she comes back, Sam hands her Michael and gives each of them a kiss before heading back to the office. Dean feels like a third wheel. He's quiet on the way back to Sam and Jess's house, and when he gets there, he tells Jessica he's going for a drive. Jessica can't hide the flash of concern in her eyes, but he swears he will be back in a couple of hours, and she reluctantly lets him leave. Michael is getting fussy, and it's time for his nap. When you had not touched me yet, 
Dean drives aimlessly for a while, looking at the familiar streets of his hometown. He actually managed to get a good chunk of his then and now book completed, and he's pretty happy with it overall. He smiles as he passes Benny's Diner, which was the place he'd first gone to lunch with Cass, and the old movie theater where they'd seen that awful movie. It's a flea market now, but the bones are there. Before long, and without intending to, he finds himself driving past Oak Hill Cemetery. He hasn't been there since he had come to Cass's sad, lonely funeral, and he didn't mean to come here today, but now that he is here, he can't resist going in. He finds Cass's grave easily. It's a simple plaque in the ground, and he sees that Cass was buried next to his sister, Anna, and his parents. He clears some of the weeds from the older graves before starting on Cass's. The grass has grown in over the mound of dirt, and he rests his hand on it. I miss you, babe, he says simply. He takes a deep breath and closes his eyes, picturing the soft blue of Cass's eyes in the sunlight of the kitchen, in the moonlight of their room. He thinks of holding his hand in the park, his big, strong, healing hands, his soft, lined hands as he... as he died. I miss you so much. You were right, though. I can't die. But I can't live like this either. I hate that this is how we end up. He runs his fingers through the soft grass on the grave. He kisses his fingers and presses them to the plaque. I'll see you soon, Cass. Dean submits his book to the publisher a few weeks later. Sam offers to take him out to celebrate, but he's not really feeling it. They stay in, and Dean cooks for once, letting Jessica have a break. It's burgers and beer and a pie, of course, and it's just like before. Dean loves his family so much. He makes sure to take a moment with each of them, but he doesn't want to be too obvious. Instead, he bugs Sammy about his hair and conspires with Jess and blows raspberries on Michael's tummy and tucks Lily in. And it's a good day. It's a good day. Dean stays up writing in his notepad for about an hour after Sam goes to sleep. He lists his passwords and pertinent online information, along with his banking information and will. He tucks that into a yellow envelope and places it on his computer, folding the rest of his pages up and stuffing them in his pocket. Sam is the smartest person Dean knows, but he's also the one he's known the longest. Breaking into the locked toolbox in the garage is way too easy. He gets what he wants, then heads outside quietly. The Impala is more difficult. The engine is loud and could wake up Sam or Jessica. So he puts it in neutral and tries to push it down the street a bit. He barely makes it two houses away before he's ready to throw up, and he decides that's far enough. Slipping inside and starting the engine, cringing as it idles lowly. But when no lights come on in Sam's house, he carefully puts it in drive and starts down the street. He doesn't head to his house. That won't work. 
He made sure his GPS was on before he left the house, and he heads in the opposite direction, finally pulling over once he reaches the high bridge over the river. He parks the car on the side of the road, pulling one of the pages of notepaper out of his pocket and setting it on the driver's seat with the keys on top. He gets out of the car, slinging his camera bag over his shoulder, and walks to the middle of the bridge. He opens his phone and taps out a message. I'm sorry, Sam, he says and hits send. He sets the phone on the railing and heads the rest of the way across the bridge to the other side, where he gets in the cab he'd arranged earlier that day and heads home. I don't know what I'm supposed to do Haunted by the ghost of you Take me back The thump wakes Castiel just as he's falling asleep, and he shoots out of bed. No, 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 he mutters as he skids down the hall and flies down the stairs to the living room. Dean's there, his body unnaturally still, vomit pooled in the corner of his mouth. Oh, fuck, he says. He checks for a pulse, but he finds nothing. He runs to the kitchen and rips the telephone receiver from its cradle pulling the phone off the wall as well in his haste. He calls Zero, and when the operator comes on, he asks for her to call an ambulance and gives his address, then drops the phone without waiting for an answer. He'd taken one of the new CPR courses not long before he'd gone on leave, and he's grateful for that now as he starts compressions on Dean, counting off and puffing air into his mouth. This is more than he can handle at home, even with his skills. He's rewarded with a wispy breath after what seems like an eternity, but Dean doesn't wake. When the ambulance arrives, he stays with Dean, despite protests from the medics, and when they arrive at the hospital, he takes charge immediately. Nurse Masters tries to steer him aside, but he just glares at her. I am still employed here, am I not? He asks. Yes, sir, she says. Then get me what I need when I ask for it, nurse. I am familiar with this patient and his medical requirements. Yes, sir, she says, and runs off to follow his orders. Eventually, Castiel manages to stabilize Dean, and he sits beside him as the heart monitor beeps quietly. Nurse Masters quietly tidies up. Before she leaves, she pauses. He would have died without you here. Castiel doesn't reply. He just heaves a breath. You're a good doctor, Dr. Novak. It's good to have you here again. When Cass looks up at her, she grins, before turning to leave. He holds Dean's hand in his and waits for him to wake up. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life only waiting for this moment to arise. Chapter 11. Sam. Sam's phone pings, but it doesn't ping again, and he barely registers it. Michael wakes up around three most nights, and Sam pats Jessica reassuringly, telling her to stay in bed. 
He drags himself downstairs and grabs a bottle out of the fridge and brings it back to Michael's room, popping it into the bottle warmer while he changes a red-faced Michael. By the time he's done, the bottle is warm. He tests it on his wrist and then settles in the rocking chair to feed the baby. He almost falls asleep in the chair, but manages to pry his eyes open when the empty bottle falls from Michael's mouth with an audible pop. He didn't get a mid-bottle burp, Sam realizes with a twinge of guilt, so he drapes the cloth over his shoulder and pats the baby for a minute. Then, when he lets out a belch and settles down, Sam sets him back into the crib and creeps out of the room. He looks in on Lily, who's softly snoring in her bed, then heads down to the spare room to check on Dean. Dean doesn't know he does this, as far as Sam knows, but he's had way too many instances of Dean convulsing on the floor for him to be able to rest easy if he doesn't. He pushes the door open quietly and looks inside. He frowns when he sees that the bed is made and there is no Dean there. He steps closer to make sure, then turns the light on to make double sure, and indeed there is no Dean there. Frantic, he runs to the front of the house and peers out at the street to where the Impala should be parked but isn't. He takes the steps two at a time and just sits up, confused, when he bursts into their room and grabs his phone. Dean's gone, he explains. He's got one text from Dean. I'm sorry, Sammy, I can't do this anymore. The car is at the 59 bridge. I love you. Oh, shit, 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 Sam says. He tries calling Dean's phone, but there's no answer. He tries again, almost dropping the phone as he pulls on his jeans and the first shirt he sees. He went to the bridge like, like an hour ago. I'm going to go there. Just, can you call 911? Jessica nods and Sam runs out through the garage, grabbing the keys to his minivan and smashing the garage door button so hard the opener falls into the footwell. He leaves it there, leaves the garage door open, and speeds to the bridge as fast as he can. The police are there before he is. They found the car at the end of the bridge with the keys inside, along with a note. His phone was on the railing of the bridge. The officer hands the note to Sam. I can't do this anymore, Sam. I tried. You know how hard I tried to get well. But it hurts. Everything hurts every single day, and I can't take it anymore. I'm going over the side of the bridge because I think it'll be the quickest. Don't call me back, Sam. It always ends bad. I love you, Sam. I love you and the kids and Jess. I'm so proud of you. I've always looked up to you. When we were kids, you were always so smart. I was always so damn proud of you. You're stronger than me. You always have been. I love you so much, baby brother. You can let me go now. Sam crumples the letter in his hand as the police start their preparations to drag the river. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free it's hours before he thinks to go to Dean's house. He updates Jess, tells her he'll be home as soon as he can, but that he needs to stop somewhere first. He's hopeful, despite all evidence to the contrary. Maybe it was a trick. 
Maybe he'll find Dean here in the house, sick but alive. He lets himself into the house quietly, listening, but there's nothing. His hand tightens on the note still crumpled in his hand, and he unfolds it, blinking at it. Don't call me back, Sam, it says. He lets out a sob and walks through the house. Dean's not in the kitchen, the bedroom, his office. It's only on the second pass-through that he sees the camera. That fucking camera. Suddenly angry, he rips it off the tripod and glares at it before smashing it on the floor. Dean isn't here. He pauses on his way out, tempted for a moment to call out to his brother. But he already knows it's no use. Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the line of a dark black night Sam found Dean's will the day after the police called off the search. But it's weeks before he can bring himself to start cleaning out Dean's house so he can list it. Dean wanted it sold and the money to go into a trust for Sam's kids. Sam gets the Impala and the remaining assets. He can't bring himself to drive the car, but he parks it in the garage and sometimes sits in it. It's Christmas before he's able to go through Dean's things. Sam goes through the clothes, donating most of it, while Jess goes through the books. Why does Dean have a bunch of outdated medical textbooks? She asks. Sam scowls. Just throw that whole box out, he says. I really need to get this done, Sam. It's a nice day. Why don't you and the kids go to the park and get out of my hair? It's been raining for two days, and it's finally cleared up in time for the weekend, so he agrees, packing snacks and pull-ups and sippy cups and herding his offspring into the minivan. He plays the radio on the way, half listening to the news, but smiling when he hears that the first same-sex marriage licenses have been issued in Kansas just this week. It sends a twinge through his heart. Dean's been gone almost two years, and he's never stopped missing him, wishing that he was still here for this huge change in the nation. Michael is a handful at the park, so he's distracted while the toddler attempts to climb things he shouldn't. His height is a definite advantage as he keeps his hand on his son's back while he makes his way up the plastic fake rock climbing wall and across the little wooden bridge. He's so busy that he doesn't notice right away that Lily has wandered off. When he finally spots her, she's halfway across the park to the gazebo, where a group of small chairs are set up. Sam tries to get Lily's attention without interrupting the ceremony, but she isn't dissuaded. The newlyweds come down from the gazebo and make their way down the aisle between the chairs, only to stop when they see Lily standing at the end of the aisle. Sam is still a long way back, holding on to a struggling Michael when one of the two elderly gentlemen grooms bends down towards Lily, who turns and points at Sam striding across the park. The man straightens, and something in his eyes brings Sam to a stop. The man must be eighty, maybe more, and Sam's close enough to make out the shocked green of his eyes. He opens his mouth, and the sudden look of terror in the old man's face makes the words die in his throat. 
The other groom, a slightly shorter man with an unkempt mop of white hair and bright blue eyes, turns to his new husband in concern, only to follow his gaze to where Sam stands, frozen twenty feet away. The look of fear is mirrored there, too. Sam looks between them for a moment and then pointedly closes his mouth. The green-eyed man's shoulders sag in relief, and he bends down to say something to Lily, who nods and then runs back to Sam. He takes her hand, gives a nod to the two grooms, and then turns to take his children home. Blackbird flies Blackbird flies Into the light of a dark black night Later that night, he's tucking Lily in when she yawns, blinking up at him. I forgot to tell you, Daddy. The man in the park told me to tell you something. He said to look in the bird book. Sam kisses his daughter and makes his way downstairs, grabbing a beer out of the fridge and making his way into the living room, where he finds the Audubon book on the shelf. He'd brought it home from Dean's that first night, and it's been sitting on the shelf untouched ever since. He pulls it down, carries it to the table, and flips it open, only to find an envelope stuck inside. An envelope that was definitely not there when he put the book on the shelf two years ago. He opens it up and flips through the photos inside. Some of them he's seen. Dr. Novak at the kitchen sink. The green-eyed man wrapped in a blanket at the kitchen table. A blurry selfie. The rest of them he hasn't seen. Dean and Cass, because that's who that is, in front of an old Bel Air. Dean and Cass in front of a Christmas tree in Dean's living room, but with different furniture and a black and white TV in the corner, looking a bit older at what looks like a muddy music festival, at a Zeppelin concert, at a beach, looking grayer and lined with teased-up 80s beach girls behind them. And the last one clearly labeled, with a rail-thin Dean sitting on a bed. Dean is pressing a kiss to Cass's cheek and holding up a page that says, Dean W., B. 1979, Castiel N., B. 1930, March 17, 1963. In love. The end. Thank you so much for listening. on
Returning to find the topic of conversation had moved on in his absence. Returning to find that the topic. F- Returning to find that the topic of. 
returning to find that the topic... <laughs> he kind of wishes... He kind of wishes it was digital. He kind of wishes it was... Castiel hums, looking at Dean speculatively. 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 <laughs> Castiel hums, looking at Dean speculatively. I knew a boy in college who was like me. Hey, go away. All right, get down. Get down. I'm going to poke you. Go. I only have a small amount of time. All right. Do you need love that badly? Hmm. He thinks of holding his hand in the park. His big, strong, healing hands. His soft, lying hands. <sighs> okay, I can't cry. <laughs> okay. But I can't live like this either. I hate this is how we end up. <laughs> okay. Ugh. <sighs> Thank you so much for your support. I can be contacted on Twitter, Tumblr, or at making it up as we go pod at gmail.com. If you are able, Please go to the author's AO3 story and give comments and kudos to them for sharing this with us. The link is in the show notes. This will also be posted on AO3 as a podfic under my username, and the link will be in the show notes as well. As always, thank you so much for listening.